nothing about us without us. And it applies to everyone in, in every situation, really. But I think you should really take it into consideration when you're thinking about what should we do in the space. But there are really simple things that can be done. And I love that backs to the wall one idea because it's so simple. Because people will walk into an open office environment and they'll go, where can I sit here that I won't constantly be in the spotlight? You've scanned the headlines, read the articles, and liked the posts. Now listen to the experts themselves in the Future of Work podcast, presented by allwork.space. Are you ready? Hello, and welcome to the Future of Work podcast by allwork.space. I'm Jo Mernier, and my guest today is David O'Coyman, the founder and CEO of Dew Company and Nook Wellness Pods. He's on a mission to make our spaces more inclusive and mindful. Now, that mission makes absolutely clear why I wanted to invite David onto our Future of Work podcast, because the future of work is for everybody. And the more inclusive and accommodating we can make those spaces, then people will be so much more comfortable, happy, well, and of course, productive. So David's here today to talk to us about neurodiversity and about designing workspaces based around a certain philosophy, which is design for the extreme benefits the mean, um, or in David's words, by shaping our spaces to tap into our personal neuro advantages, we create more equitable, purposeful environments which improve everyone's ability to bring their full selves to the table and thrive. So I'm really looking forward to hearing more about this and learning more about the work that David and his team are doing to make the future of work a happier and more inclusive place. So welcome, David, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much indeed, Joe. Absolute delight and pleasure to be here. Brilliant. Well, we'll dive straight in. And can you tell me, first of all, a little bit about your background um, and how you came to create the Do Company and Nook? Absolutely. I'll try and keep it as uh, elevator pitch as possible. Uh, but it is a, a wee long story. I'm a product designer originally. I, so I wander around the world with a, a set of eyes that's always looking for ways to improve the world, thinking about the future, the forward direction of travel and how I can accelerate our abilities to get there. Uh, typically, that was uh, designing for others. Um, but I sold a company in 2011, went to work for an incredibly large organization. So I went from MD of 25 people to a colleague of 175,000 at the signing of an acquisition, which was a hell of an experience. But it gave me an amazing insight into the state, and I'm going to use the word pointedly, the state of open office. And it left me very depressed. It left me feeling that uh, open office had no longer been designed, uh, or perhaps never was, with people in mind, but was still hanging on to an industrial, um, industrialized sort of philosophy of people in rows with a four-person and uh, operating more like a factory. Henry Ford would have been proud, but I'm not sure the Dalai Lama would have been proud, for example. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to do something about it, Joe. That's basically where the sort of kernel frustration and necessity are the mothers of invention, right? And thank goodness you did want to do something about it, because I think I was one of those people who was definitely not thriving in, in an open plan office. Um, and that so that taps into the work you're doing now around neurodiversity. Mm -hmm. um, so could you tell us a little bit about about that um, and also what percentage of the population are neurodiverse? So, yeah, indeed, uh, to be specific about neurodiversity, and I want to get this right sort of at the top, and it's important for me to get it right as much as to help your listeners understand, is that neurodiversity isn't a subset of the population. Neurodiversity is the population. It's, it relates to the differences in the way that we all think and process information, how we learn, different people learn in different ways, and how we behave, how we act. 
And most people would be probably categorized as neurotypical, but right over sort of in one corner or in the extremes, I should say, not in one corner, but out at the edges, it's, some, it's something that's called neurodivergent. And there you'd say one in seven people are said to be uh, neurodivergent, which means they have sort of unique traits. An example of neurodivergent conditions would be things like uh, ADHD, something I'm very familiar with myself, uh, autism, dyspraxia, dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, Tourette syndrome. Um, there's quite a few uh, to speak of, but they, basically what they do is they sort of show, show up uh, how our systems have been designed for typical minds and leave uh, sort of extreme ways of thinking out at the edges. And I think we're much poorer as a result. Mm. And how is the work you're doing um, helping the situation? Well, I mean, I was very mindful, uh, if I may use the pun, uh, right back five years ago when I started that I was never going to be a Google or a Facebook and I didn't want to build a huge company. And I'd just done something with 23 shareholders. And, uh, you know, it had been, uh, I recognized my own neuro uh, traits and where I'm strong. And I'm a terrible manager. I'm an absolutely terrible manager of people. I'm great with people, but I'm an awful manager. Um, I'm not good at planning. I'm not good at data. I'm brilliant at concepts and people, but not at the, you know, the ones and zeros and the stuff that makes it all work. So I wanted to create something that was a little bit different. I'm watching how the world is moving forward. I see um, the gig economy. I see freelancers. I see co-working. And I think, okay, let's build a different kind of company. Let's build something that's a little bit more digital first. That's remote oriented long before COVID ever came along and forced us all mm -hmm. to do so. We don't have offices. We're all based in sort of co-working around the world. And it was a little bit more geared towards high levels of sort of dexterity and work-life balance for people. And then so the idea was to create an ingredient, not to change the world, you know, in one fell swoop, because I know that doesn't happen easily, but to create mm -hmm. an ingredient for ordinary companies who don't have a global employee wellness director, for example, or big budgets to employ designers. They have, you know, an office manager and an owner, perhaps, and maybe somebody in HR, but that's where the millions of us really work. We really work in ordinary companies. So I wanted to create, I had the idea that if I could create an affordable kind of open, accessible, hackable, mindful, you know, sustainable um, with these wellness characteristics, a sanctuary space, if we could create somewhere where, and now I want to talk broader, not just about neurodiversity, not just about neurodivergence, but one in four people are said to be highly sensitive people, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes 50 to even 75% of your workforce could self-identify as introvert. That's something that we're not mm -hmm. talking about. And workspace, openly open plan workspace, in my view, has, this, has been designed by the loudest voices, the extroverts, for avatars of themselves. And I'm guilty of that myself. So you can see I'm no introvert. I'm a bit of an ambivert. I kind of like, I work on the extremes and then I crash and I want to get away from everybody. But so I wanted to sort of recognize that open plan workspace has a role, but it's mm -hmm. not the one size fits all that it can purport to be. And so in order to solve that, I came up with the idea that if I could create little step out spaces that didn't isolate you, 
It didn't remove you from the environment. Meeting rooms do that. That's fine. You know, closed pods do that. That's fine. But something that was a bit in the middle. And I felt like I could possibly help a lot of people take a step in a good direction. Absolutely. And how do, how do they work? How do some companies use them? Do they dot them around the space or do they have, you know, a specific corner uh, where people can well, go and use as you, them? as you might imagine now, having sold thousands of them around the world at this stage and hired them out to various events, they use them in all sorts of fascinating and interesting ways. But mm. if I was to characterize and try and limit it to something that's a little bit more um, digestible, I would say they use them in a couple of different ways. One is a single pod brought into a space to start off a, a sort of a change of, of mentality, uh, pushed against the wall, out of the way, so you can step away from the environment and still watch the idea of, in biophilia, they say um, refuge and prospect. Well, the mm -hmm. nook is your refuge, and you can prospect out over the savanna, being the open office environment. But I also see them, like, for example, one customer, um, BP, they use the nooks in clusters around the space and they have them back to back and there'll be a huddle and a couple of phone booth type pods all together. Mm -hmm. And so it ends up being a kind of a, a breakout space, which I think we're going to see a lot more of. I think that function of breakout is going to really change and take a lot of percentage from the, 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 the rows of desks and the flex space uh, in, in the office environment. Uh, and then you see them really helping now, especially um, post corona, or post vaccine, activate new space because our footprint is so important right and we might not be able mm. to get so many people back in the office so we need to maximize the use of the space so are you activating corridors and spaces under stairs and the lobby of the building even the roof and things like that so they're a way to activate new space or to push them out to the edges or to create little zones in the space. i love that word activate it's like it really brings the workplace to life in a good way that's more inclusive it's for everybody and like you say, not just for the, the loudest voice or the squeakiest wheel. Exactly. And activating brains in a way, too. I talked about you talked about it in my bio at the start there, too, about neuro advantages. I think we're leaving so much on the table, Joe. Mm. I think we're leaving so much power and capability in our organizations on the table. And people are leaving our, our, our organizations to go somewhere that understands and appreciates their brains better. Yeah. And I think if we can be a little bit more mindful, a little bit more providing options and the ability to tailor the space in a little way for different kinds of brains, yeah. then things can really start to fly. Absolutely. And the fact that you've sold thousands of pods, um, that, that to me is good news. It, it sort of suggests that a lot of companies are now thinking about these problems and, and that they want to do something about it and they want to accommodate more and more people. And a few years ago, um, in the not so distant past, I think if, if an introvert had gone up to their manager and say, I want a quieter place to work, they might have been laughed out the building, you know, <laughs> come on, 100%. here's your desk, get on with it sort of thing. Um, so do you feel that things are starting to change in the modern workplace? Yes, I think introverts will still have that problem. I think we shouldn't be, um, we shouldn't be hyper optimistic to think that uh, everything's going to change now because of COVID. I think we have a fight on our hands to, you know, the toothpaste may be out of the tube and it's very difficult to get it back in again. Pandora's <laughs> box is open, uh, so to speak. But there's still a lot of organizations that are going to expect you back in the office on the 1st of September, Monday, Monday to Friday. And the flexibility they'll allow is, well, you can start an hour later and finish an hour later. So, we're, you know, but having said that, I've never known a time where the employee is more empowered than they are now mm -hmm. to be able to 
say to their uh, employers, I expect this. And part of the reason for that is often leadership makes decisions from, mm -hmm. forgive me for saying this, but a bit of an ivory tower. Uh, do as I say, don't, but I don't have to do as I say myself. Don't do as mm -hmm. I do. But now everybody has been um, thrown into the sort of same boat. And we've seen how remote can work and we've seen how people can be more productive. And I think there's going to be a shift. And I think indeed there has never been a better time to put your hand up and say, I find that challenging, but you can really help me and people like me in this space mm -hmm. to bring ourselves, our whole selves to bear on the challenges that this organization faces and the things that we're trying to do to build you know, a community, a company, intellectual property, all of the objectives that might be in the mission statement that might not have made it to the factory floor or to the yeah. office floor, so to speak. I think there's really never been a better time than, than now to, to, to reorganize ourselves and try and capture this moment. Absolutely. And you mentioned community just there. And that made me think of uh, Kat Johnson's convo that you were on recently. Um, and I remember one of the things you mentioned um, during that discussion was that a lot of people um, feel safer when they, for instance, have their back to the wall um, and, of course, having their own quiet space, um, be it a nook pod or some other booth to sit in. That helps them feel um, stronger, more empowered, more confident and, at, at the end of the day, more productive. Um, so obviously using um, your sanctuary spaces is one way, um, but how, what other ways can workspace managers or CEOs create a more inclusive, more accommodating workplace for people? Well, I'm gonna say at the top of sort of, you know, these tips, the first one is to talk to your, uh, talk to your employees, right? There's an expression in the community, which I think is beautiful and should be remembered. And it is nothing about us without us. And it applies to everyone in, in every situation, really. But I think you should really take it into consideration when you're thinking about what should we do in the space. Mm -hmm. But there are really simple things that can be done. And I love that backs to the wall one idea because it's so simple. Because people will walk into an open office environment and they'll go, where can I sit here that I won't constantly be in the spotlight? Yeah. That people won't be coming up to my desk uninvited, that I can give some sort of signal to say, um, I'm going to be here doing this. And when I'm not doing this, I'm going to come back in and join you and then please approach me. And so indeed having some sort of permission signaling and spaces that say I'm quiet, right? Even a room, for example, I've been in co-working and I have a hush room and it's lovely. You go in there and if someone's phone rings, they get up and they walk out because that's the room where people are quiet. And it really helps to do little things like, I'm thinking now about, practical things in the space. Use the natural light that's there, but also make sure that that light can be controlled. So mm -hmm. if you have sunlight blasting into that space at certain times of the day, that can be incredibly disruptive for somebody who mm -hmm. has a, a sensitive brain. Loud colors, you know, think about the difference between a hypersensitive mind and hypo sensitive mind. Mine would be hypo-sensitive, right? I love, I thrive on activity and things going on and loud colors. But that would absolutely cause someone to have a meltdown after 15 minutes if they had a hyper-sensitive brain. And it's good to have both, but allow those options. Those options, I think, are at the heart of how to make a space more neuro-inclusive, is mm -hmm. to give people choice. And not just so they can go, I'm going to sit there all day, because our brains aren't like that. It's yeah. linked to what kind of sleep I've had how I'm feeling today, what kind of work I have to do. Is it group work? Is it deep work? 
Am I a programmer? Am I in the marketing team? <laughs> if I'm in the marketing and sales team, I'm probably not introvert. I've probably, you know, headed in that direction of a career because I love that sort of hypo-sensitive, sort of extrovert kind of ways. Mm -hmm. But simple things like, you know, if it's like maybe someone with an invisible disability, like they might have some visible, uh, some uh, visual impairments, sort of challenges, making sure that your floor and your walls and your door frames and your light switches, there's a visible clear differences between them, that your signage is sans serif, good contrast between fonts and backgrounds, and indeed you know, spaces where people can, if they do need to relax at the end of the day, don't put the ping pong table in the middle of the space or the, or, or the football or the pool table. That's how some people relax. Mm -hmm. but other people would tend to more look for a spa type environment with some calming, you know, uh, sort of acoustic tunes or something soft and mellow or something that they can maybe plug their own iPhone in and be able to tailor. And lighting is really important too. That's one of the challenges I think in these big open spaces is that light has a profound effect on your brain's ability to process information. And we can't let everybody adjust the light for themselves. But if they have little alcoves where they can grab a, a color changing remote and adjust it for themselves, it has two big effects. One is it feels like your space, even if it's mm -hmm. only for 15 minutes. And that feels a connection with the space that helps you engage more in the work. And then, as I say, it can have a profound effect on the brain's ability to process information. And in mm -hmm. particular, if that person is dyslexic or autistic, then being able to tune that light for their particular needs could avoid a dyslexic attack. Mm -hmm. could avoid a meltdown or help them to recover after one where they might otherwise have to leave the premises entirely. So right, light, okay. options, controllability, thinking about different colors, not too crazy, not too, not too bold, allowing different kinds of options in the space. They all have, uh, you know, small things can have a big effect. And does this tap into what we mentioned in the introduction, the design for the extreme benefits the mean? Yeah, it really does. And at the cornerstone of that as well, it's not just the idea of oh, we need to design for the one in seven. It's not that. It's we need to design for the full seven, the <laughs> full hundred percent, I should say. Mm -hmm. And I think and, I, and I've seen great evidence of this and I strongly believe that when you create solutions that are built around the extreme requirements, everybody benefits because we all have moments where we'd love to be able to step out. We all have times where, I don't know, if you design for, for example, um, a permanent uh, challenge, like somebody maybe, uh, give you an extreme example now of someone who has one arm uh, or someone who's blind. Think then about the knock-on benefits that that would have for someone who has a temporary challenge, like an injury or someone who has conjunctivitis, <laughs> for example, or then think about the even further, deeper, wider benefits that that would have then for somebody who's carrying a baby or carrying a device and only has one hand to be able to get through the door. So instead of having, you know, a wheelchair access door button, how about just a great big door button that works for everybody and that's always yeah. useful? I mean, I see those and I think, I want to use that. That's, that's amazing. That's so convenient. <laughs> Our world should be built like that. And that's what I mean by design for the extreme or design with the extreme. It's benefits for everybody at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, it does make me think, though, if, if some workplaces are so difficult for some people to work in, 
should we really use them at all? And is and is with the situation we've had, um, remote work has actually activated some people and helped them to do better work. Uh, not everybody, obviously. So it's very, very difficult to walk that balance, isn't it? It is. I think the recognition is, and I think the direction of travel long term, where we'll look back from in 20 years time, I think is a lot around the dexterity and flexibility to be able to choose things that are closer to home and then go to the office when it makes sense to go to the office. And that's why I say about the percentage of flex desk and third space or, uh, or breakout space, how I think that's going to change over time, that the mm -hmm. office is indeed going to become this space that people go to to collaborate, to, mm -hmm. what do they call it? The architects use the four C's. Um, community, where you go and you get broadcast at, uh, like, you know, a town hall kind of gathering. Uh, collaboration, where you bump into your colleagues and you have meetings and group meetings and you schedule things. And then uh, concentration. And I think the office is going to less and less become a place that you go to concentrate. That you'll either do at home, or if home doesn't suit you, you'll find a local co-working. Hospitality, I think there's going to be an explosion hospitality as uh, as a work resource i think shopping malls are due for a reinvention and i think they'll possibly become social villages when the work and living element gets added to them and that's already happening so as we see that landscape changing high street i think is due for a revamp and i think work can help uh, local sort of co-working can help revamp the high street and mm -hmm. as those changes start to take place that's more options for people and then what they'll do is they'll say well i'm going to work from there like the way I do, I choose a professional co-working environment rather than home when I have a lot of Zoom calls or I have some meetings and things like that. And I use home for the things that it makes sense for, mm -hmm. coordinate with my partner for when she has a lot of calls and I don't want to be there when that's going on. So I think that balance is what we're going to look back from in 20 years time. And I also think the neuroinclusivity component of it is something that we're going to look back on it in, in decades and go, oh my gosh, look. We were just at the start of that, and now it's just totally integrated into the ways and means that we operate. It's all about choice, isn't it? Giving people the choice to work wherever they feel best. And where does choice come from? Trust. You know, to give people choice, you have to trust them. Mm -hmm. But all of the research and all of the, what we've proven now over the last 18 months is that we need to stop designing for the 5% who take advantage of trust and design for the 95% who don't. And that's how I think we build a world for the future, which is equitable and balanced and where work and life, you know, play a role in satisfaction and how we operate and even in greater sustainability. Look at the last 18 months and how little we've traveled and the impact that's had or will have long-term on the environment, the lack of commuting. All of those things, I think, play into where we need to get to in this mm -hmm. emergency situation. Which, and we can't solve this emergency without using all the brain power that we have, which we're not using. Yeah. And um, just thinking, we've talked a lot about um, people who are classified as neurodiverse. Uh, but for the people um, that do enjoy these busy, big open plan offices, um, the open plan offices, it's had a pretty bad rap in recent years. So. Is it still going to be part of our future, do you think? Or will it be uh, a combination of things? We might still have the busy open office, but then we'll have these sanctuary spaces. How do you see that panning out? I think the, um, the death of the office has been greatly exaggerated. What we've seen uh, in the first sort of phase of this situation 
was people very quick to um, to write it off. But even uh, those among us who cherish the opportunity to get away from the office have been longing for the opportunity to get back in contact again with our fellow human. <laughs> and the office is still a central place to do that. Mm -hmm. And until such a time that that doesn't make sense anymore, and I can't see that time, I honestly can't. I think the office plays a really valuable, important function in helping us to understand the organizations that we work for, the people that we work with, the community and culture that we evolve, you know, onboarding new people. We can't do all of that remotely, mm -hmm. and we don't want to do all of that remotely. So I think it'll yeah. maintain its role. But as you say, it'll be a balanced and a position which fits into, hopefully, a plethora of options. But it's high level. It's home, third space, office. And you choose between the three, whatever works for you, for your brain, for the task at hand. Perfect. And we're very nearly out of time. Uh, but just one last question for you. What's your utopian vision for the future of work? How do you see us working in 10, 20 years time? Um, I think it's a lot like we've described uh, a couple of times uh, over the course of this chat is that notion of at the core of it being um, choice mm -hmm. and with a, a huge uh, integrated component around equity and understanding and taking advantage of those neuro advantages that exist. Like we're, mm -hmm. we're, we're communicating today on a device which was essentially, you know, kickstarted or, or really advanced into the future by somebody with Asperger's. If you think about Alan Turing, um, you may not know, but the, the architect for the Sydney Opera House, which again, if you look at it, I, now that I know this, I look at that architecture and I think, oh yeah, that makes sense. Uh, the guy had uh, dyslexia <laughs> and dyspraxia, I believe, which is extraordinary wow. considering the maths involved. And there are so many incredible examples of how neurodivergent brains and inclusive thinking has helped us to move forward as a species. So my utopian view of the future is that we take leaps forward um, and that we get out of our own way with this traditional mindset and that mm -hmm. we integrate these beautiful neuro advantages into our ways of thinking and into how we grow our organization. Fantastic. Well, that has been absolutely fascinating. I've really enjoyed talking with you today, David, and learning about everything that you're doing to make the future of work a happier, and more inclusive place. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks very much indeed, Joe. Absolute pleasure. Great to chat. And one last thing, how can our listeners find out more about you? Um, can they get in touch with you somehow? Through a of website? course, absolutely. Yes. So the website to find out a little bit more about Nook is simply nookpod.com. And my surname is pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. So if you look me up there, you'll find me and I'd be absolutely delighted to connect because I love to connect and collaborate and build new things. And Nook was intended to be a collaborative sort of canvas on which others could apply their technology and it's very hackable. And so I'm really open to, you know, what that product is going to evolve to in the future and looking for collaboration partners in that. Perfect. Thanks so much, David. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Joe. Bye bye. Thank you. If it's impacting the future of work, it's in the Future of Work podcast by allwork.space. Are you ready?